Ah, Hi. yes. Long time no see. You are a dream for Major defense companies such as Airbus, Thales, Leonardo and Indra are cashing in on EU border militarization. The EU's current border policy is a profitable business for the companies making millions of migration policy. As their lobbyists have strategically pushed in Brussels for the expansion of the defense industry, these corporations have been among the main beneficiaries of numerous EU research projects involving large-scale surveillance through sensor networks and satellite-based communication infrastructure. Hello and welcome to Left Takes on the EU, a podcast from the left in the European Parliament. I'm Sonja Giese, and those were some of the key findings of a new study called EU Border Regime, Profiteering from Dehumanization and Mythologized Technologies. Researched and written for our group by Jacqueline Andres from the Information Center on Militarization. My colleague David Lundy recently talked to Jacqueline and our MEPs, Özlem Demirel and Claire Daly, about the research, how it fits into what we know about EU militarization, and how new border technologies impact the people seeking safety in Europe. Just to give us a bit of context and background, Jacqueline Andres is joining us here. She's the researcher and author of the study we're launching. First of all, could you describe your research? What led you to this topic of technologization of the EU border regime? Yeah, so thank you. How did I get to that research? Actually, I started as an activist for freedom of movement, like the right to freedom of movement for everyone. And from there, I got involved in like migration politics. This confronted me with the fact that it was close to the military. I did that also in Italy, and there you also have like soldiers standing in front of uh, accommodation centers for migrants. So this when I was started to get interested into the role of the military in it all, and saw that it's really a bigger picture. I started to put on uh, glasses that were always looking for military structures, and then they were also looking for companies involved. Because when you're at the border or something, you have lots of profiteers, and it's changing the whole economy around the centers. Also civil players before are suddenly involved then. So this is, I started to wear these glasses all the times of military geographies, also coined by Rachel Woodward. Then I ended up at the Information Center on Militarization. And so it was almost natural for me to be confronted with the classical arms industry players the question, what are they doing and how are they trying to get money? And given that after the Cold War, they were lacking legitimacy to demand more money, more funding, they needed a new one. And so this became migration. And with there, I also had great help of Christoph Marischka. He's also writing about these issues at the center. And so we had this kind of together. So we started to follow the money and also to understand how these players are changing their products or how they are trying to have new legitimacy in different phases of these development of the migration politics, always in a change. And we see that those who profit, they're way more than just those of the major defense industry sector.
So when you talk about the players in this industry, I mean, some of the names you'd recognize looking at the study are pretty well-known kind of household names, Airbus, Talis, and then there's a lot more kind of smaller, more obscure kind of companies making money out of this regime. Could you talk us through who are the main beneficiaries yeah, so the big players are the known defense industry players. It's like Thales, Indira, Airbus, Leonardo. They're like the big ones. But then in the end, when we look at the border regime and how many forms of technologies are involved, we have also some who are profiting by just offering a little piece of it, such as sensors, for example. And there we have Hensold, which is well known, and it's also now in the media because it's uh, producing sensors for drones who are used in the drone wars right now, and like armed drones as well. So we also have lots of startups and also analytics. There is also one in Brussels, for example, where you are, Science for Humanity. They are developing heart detectors, which are used at the border. Even if these startups are not aiming to produce products for the border regime from the beginning, by developing sensors or algorithms, like lots of it in analytics, it's also mathematical minimization. It's like a machine learning. These can be transformed, like they are developed for one goal, but often they can be applied on many other things. So there we also have some players who don't start as players. That's not their goal, but they become that. Like others, they're usually they're created and then other companies buy them. And it's also something that we have in this town where I am right now. Here we have lots of research on artificial intelligence and we have startups and they are aiming to being bought up. Apart from that, we also have IT companies. They don't just offer hardware anymore. They also offer cloud services and softwares and also maintenance of software. We have capital consulting companies like Deloitte who are also involved and they are also into the development of softwares. They're just consulting, but they're also producing. They don't just consult and provide the capital. They're also proactive. And then we also have platforms and autonomous systems. You always have vehicles that are being used. On the one hand, you have the classical vehicles that are manned vehicles and then you have all the unmanned vehicles and usually those who supply manned vehicles are now also into the development of unmanned vehicles there is the aim to have unmanned land vehicles like cars they are already in development like Rheinmetall has already developed one and the development of these autonomous systems was also funded under the pretext of migration there were EU research projects for autonomous systems. They were under the header of migration because back then military research was not allowed. And that's like also something that's dual use. It's not a surprise that we have Dimetal there because it's also very interesting for the military to have autonomous systems and of course research institutions. Thanks Jacqueline. Just to follow up on that, then, what kind of money are we talking about here? And because you mentioned Brussels there, presumably these companies have, you know, an army of lobbyists kind of stalking the corridors, pushing their agenda here in Brussels. We hear a lot about the corporate capture of EU policymaking. How do these companies get these contracts? Yeah, it's not so easy to say about how much money we are talking about because it's like a labyrinth. Like, it's very hard to have the oversight over all the funds. And even if we have a list of the funds, 
Like there are some funds who have a very clear name. We have the Integrated Border Management Fund. It's clear that this money goes to border management. We're talking here about 6.24 billion for 2021 to 27. We also have other funds where we don't know or it's hard to calculate how much of these funds are being used for the border management. And one of the examples for this, or one example for that, are like the pre-accession assistance projects, which are in order to prepare the Western Balkan states to become part of the EU. And then suddenly some amount of the money goes into reception centers or into the cooperation of deportation in these countries. So these are surprising things. And then there are also another example is the EU Regional Trust Fund for Syria, Madad. And 2% of it goes into reception centers, like into centers in Serbia or Northern Macedonia. So it's hard to have the oversight. We know we are talking about billions, like there is the figure of from 2014 to 2019, that at least 70 billion were invested outside of the EU to curb migration. We also know that the amounts are increasing. More and more money is being put into it. And there we come to your second question. How do they get the money? We have a very active security industry, actually results out of the defense industry. But as I said, when they saw that they couldn't get money for tanks, they developed new products and new identity. And so they became a security industry. So they're having their white papers ready. They say, we know what the problem is. We define the problem. We define the solution and we produce the product that you need to apply the solution. So there is lots of strategic communication going on, like by publishing, by being part of the committees, also by the revolving door effect. First they are in the industry and then they become part of the political management, like of the EU, for example. Or we also have the other way around. People who had important positions within the EU suddenly become part of the defense market or the security market. Often also when we look at research projects that are being funded by the EU, for example, the last one was Horizon 2020, which is now Horizon Europe. They had advisory groups like the Protection and Security Advisory Group, for example, who would determine who gets the contracts, like who can do these research projects. Often we had the representatives from the same research institution or from the same company sitting in this advisory group deciding who gets the contract as those who were writing the application to get the contract. It's a very strong lobbying. The positive fact for us is that they need to have such a strong lobbying and they need to spend also millions in lobbying because their solutions are not good, like their solutions don't make any sense. And this is why they have to spend millions on it. We don't have that money, but our solutions to the problems that we define that we have, have way more sense. Claire Daly, MEP from Independence for Change from Ireland and especially active member of the LIBE committee, which deals with questions surrounding migration policy. So Claire, you've been to EU borders, you've seen detention centres, how asylum seekers are being treated. Have you seen these systems in operation? What does this technologization of borders mean for people who are trying to flee violence and escape violence? 
The first thing that I'd say is that from just visiting the various sites that are implicated in the EU border regime, you don't really get the direct visceral experience of this process of technology. When we were in Chios Island in Greece recently, for example, it was very much about getting beyond the abstraction of the border that you experience when you're talking about these issues and looking at the human faces behind it. So they're real people who are the victims of this system, the asylum seekers in prison in the islands, the NGO workers who are being persecuted by the Greek authorities, the correspondents and the lawyers who are fighting for them and so on. And I think it gives you an idea of the human level of the scale of what's taking place. I suppose I was struck very much there about how much more securitized these places of detention have become. In that example, we were dealing with a facility which could cater for 1,400 people. There were 230 people there, largely women and children. And you were talking about massive barbed wires, massive investment had gone into security. So 30 guards employed at every point of time during that day, massive sort of riot shields in stock very much big money. And I think because you can't really get to see it when you're there, it's why a study like this is so important because it's the technologies behind it that makes these regimes possible. Now the report itself obviously deals with the border isn't just a physical place. A lot of the technologies obviously are aimed at policing that physical space. So we have, as Jacqueline mentioned, the drones, the high resolution cameras, the motion sensors, heat sensors, the CO2 detectors to try and pinpoint people. But I suppose the effect of the technologies that we're talking about is that it extends the borders beyond the physical frontier. And I think that's why you don't really get a full sense when you're just there and why actually a study like this, which looks at the structural nature, is very important. Now, I mean, you mentioned the Libe Committee, and you're right, we deal an awful lot there with the EU database systems. And these are the systems which incorporate biometric data, for example, and we've worked extensively on that in the committee, the use of artificial intelligence, algorithms, and these are the technologies which, I suppose, extend the border out into third countries inward within the EU itself. So they're incredibly dangerous. They actually make the border a permanent abstract feature of life for people. So it's a bureaucratic reality now, our borders, rather than a physical space. And I think they are the technologies that dehumanize people because a person isn't a person with a story that brought them to Europe's physical border. They're a data point and frequently surrendered up for automatic processing, really. And that's what we're talking about. And I mean, you asked about what do the technologies mean for people? And I think that's a very good question because Jacqueline points it out in the study is that the technologies rarely work as they're marketed to do, you know? So they backfire, they make mistakes, they make faulty readings. And of course, the malfunctions never benefit the asylum seeker or the migrant. The people, the manufacturers are never held to account to it. Actually, it leads to a further dehumanization. And when they do work and do function, if they don't change anything about the reasons why people ended up at that border in the first place, they don't solve any of the environmental or economic pressures or the conflicts that make people desperate enough to leave their homes and everything that they know 
and I mean what is also absolutely certain is that they don't stop people trying to make it safely to a new life. Actually what they do is make it harder and more inhumane for people to transfer borders. So if you look at the CO2 sensors and the presence sensors in vehicles, containers, all this has done is driven people into dinghies and small boats, further in power traffickers and so on. So I suppose the point that we'd be making here very strongly is that technologies, um, you know, none of these technologies address the basic reality at all. And the only thing that they can do is sort of abandon. To do that is to get a safe and legal access to Europe's borders. So it's a complete and utter waste of money, denial of reality and a denial of the humanity and the stories that lead people to come here in the first place. But I think the study is really good that it structurally puts that very much to the fore. Left MEP Özlem Demirel is Vice Chair of the European Parliament's Subcommittee on Security and Defence, with extensive experience following and fighting the process of EU militarization. We asked her to give us some background and context as to what's been changing on EU borders over the last decade, where she thinks it's going and how we can fight it. The situation and development at the EU external borders is worrying, no matter which external border we look at, no matter if we look to Bosnia and Croatia, Poland and Belarus, Greece and Turkey, or in general the Mediterranean Sea. We have to talk about brutal border policies and about pushbacks which contradict the international right and the refugee convention. Human rights are violated and about military technology used against people who have to flee from their homes. The border management agency has been equipped in recent years with more and more money, resources and issues independent armed corps. Rescue ships were withdrawn and the EU used aerial civilians with drones. Information provided to technologies on migration flows is provided with militias such as the Libyan Coast Guard to organize pullbacks, so bringing people back to the civil war country Libya. In short, the developments are fatal. It is changing our humanity, it is violating human rights, and there is an industry who is benefiting from this development. The arm industry is earning money by arm exports of the EU. Disarmament is used in wars by people becoming refugees and have to flee from their homes. And then they are again benefiting from the fortress Europe, uh, of European Union while this technology they built up is used on the borders. The EU is talking about a peace union. It was called as a peace project long times. But we have to see that there had been a lot of steps toward a military union in the last time. It starts by military research funds, go to the European Defence Fund over battle groups to common operations. 
But what we have to say is that in, in truth, it's not really about defense, but it's about hard economic interests, interests of the big money for markets or resources. And this is dangerous because militarization could always end in a war. And this is not what we need. Um, we should say also uh, clearly that here are billions invested. This is public money, which is also needed for healthcare, education, or other infrastructure projects, which are really, really needed. And we have to say that when we are talking, for example, about the drone systems, the technologies, uh, um, for air surveillance, we are talking about the technologies built up by the arm industry. It's military technology used against people. And this is also against the self-declared values of the European Union. We have to say that the arm industry is one of the industries which are, which is growing day by day and has increased their value tenfold and this is not the right way the European Union should go. How can we fight it? Are there examples of success in opposing militarization that we can learn from? I think First, we need to clarify, educate about the connections and the influence of the security and arm industry on politics and about the steps that have been taken towards a military union uh, on EU level. I want to underline that uh, this is not a defense policy, that this is not about defense, but uh, on armament for geopolitical and economical interests for markets and resources for the big capital, uh, the readiness for wars should be increased. So uh, this is very dangerous development we have to see here. Second, we must talk about the fact that progress and new technologies are misused in the sense of the uh, armed industries, but uh, we want civilian research and technology pros uh, progress. It is not acceptable that the arm industry does business with EU research fund. So we have to change this and to guarantee that there is not, that European funds are not used for researchers of the arm industry. Um, but we have to say, and to be honest, that the industry commissioner, uh, Thierry Breton of the European Union, he himself was the CEO of a company in the security industry, it's Atos. And Atos is one of the most known industries, uh, companies in this field. So we should not leave industrial policy to someone from who is an arm lobbyist. And yes, sure, there are good examples for uh, opposing militarization. Um, like the success uh, of the anti-nuclear movement, for example. Today, more and more people are demanding that nuclear bombs be, uh, are banned. 
This is due to the fact that in the meantime, much is known about the consequences of this fatal technology and that many people have fought for years across borders against this. Thank you to Özlem, Claire and Jacqueline for their insight and comments on this. You will find more info and the full report on our website at left.eu. Just one more piece of info before we finish up. After the recording of the interview, Jacqueline Andres got in touch to let us know something you might be interested in. In November this year, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek revealed he was investing 100 million euros in an artificial intelligence company that develops national security and defense sector technology. That news has sparked a movement to boycott Spotify over X support of the military-industrial complex. We thought you might like to know in case you're listening to us on that platform. Anyway, thanks for listening and see you back on our next episode in the new year when we will be hearing from our candidate for president of the European Parliament, a feminist, an anti-fascist and a fighter for workers, Sierra Rego. Until then, stay safe und bleibt gesund.